The following is a production of differentbrains.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we have the pleasure of revisiting our friend, Dr. Gail Saltz, who's not only a columnist, podcast host, television commentator, and the best-selling author whose latest book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. She's also a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Wheel Cornell Medical College, and a psychoanalyst at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. Gail, you're not busy enough. That's all I could tell you. Well, I'm very invested in the current the current project. It's the culmination of all, of all those things into one. So I'm really pleased to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us again. It's uh, You're really one of the pioneering leaders who's really out there in the mainstream, patiently explaining that all of our brains are different. There's no great stigma to it. And let's help you harness your strengths Let's spend 80% of the time on that, and let's spend in the Dr. Gail Saltz 80-20 rule, 20% of the time trying to build up your weaknesses. Yes. Yes. And because, you know, this is what I would say, if I had a phrase, it would be, because we all have strengths and weaknesses, and it's how you play to your strengths and manage your weaknesses that ultimately do determine where you'll end up in life. That was so well put, Gail. I want to put that on a national monument. And I got to tell you, you've just given me a lot of inspiration and hope because you have the big picture. And I'm sure in your book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, it goes on to articulate it even further and so well. And what I'm finding is the stigma, I agree with you 100%. That's the big deal, okay? And what I've been very gratified to learn as a little bit of a segue here into our psychology friends is that my daughter, Rebecca, who's my hero, who is now going for her master's in applied psychology, she's taking a favorite course right now, which didn't used to exist in psychology, which is biopsychology or the biology of it, where they're really getting into the anatomy and the function. And as you said so eloquently, now that we have this newer and newer technology where you can see that part of the brain light up, where I have, I interviewed Jennifer Jo Brout, and I said, Jennifer, I've never heard of what you have, misophonia, which I didn't, I never heard of. And she was explaining to me how these body sounds like chewing or breathing, they go right to her amygdala and she can see it light up and she wants to like go into a road rage, but she trains herself to go back to her frontal cortex and maybe go over the reasonableness of it. And so all of the dots are connecting with all of these things with pioneering leaders such as you. Well, thank you. Um, I, I think that I hoped that people who will read and understand this and, and part of the reason that I, I framed 
the book, not only in terms of symptoms, but in also, um, I, I spoke with many people, many neuroscientists, um, but many individuals, um, some of whom people will recognize, like David Sedaris, or, you know, well-known, highly successful people, um, as well as some they might not happen to recognize because maybe they wouldn't know the most decorated paleontologist in the nation or, you know, a particular Nobel Prize winning doctor. But um, but these are all people who uh, have struggled mightily, mightily with some uh, real symptom issues, but also used the correlating strength to be highly, highly accomplished, which brought them a lot of pleasure in life in addition. Um, so I think, I hope that not only the data, but but the understanding of of real people um, will be not only aspiring to adults that struggle with these issues, but particularly parents, because, um, you know, the lag time between symptom presentation and diagnosis for kids is like two to five years. And in a childhood, that's a long time. That's a long time to be symptomatic and fall off your developmental track. And um, and that is time that in some ways can't really be recouped completely. So I'm and the reason that the length of time is so long is that it's so awful to a parent is so stigmatizing and upsetting that to some degree, not consciously, but unconsciously, parents, you know, don't notice the symptom because they can't bear the idea that, oh, you know, maybe my child really has whatever it is. Um, I think that if we as a nation could, um, you know, bring brains into the same place, as you just pointed out, that we bring pancreases and hearts and, and you know, uh, livers and other organs that we don't have a problem talking about or going to the doctor for, that, um, that parents would recognize what is happening with their child and bring them for the treatment that they need and set them back on the developmental path, but maybe even more importantly, if clinicians like myself, when they see people, when they see children or adults, would not only say, uh, let's look at this, these symptoms and how we're going to treat them, but also say, did you know that with these particular symptoms, you likely have these particular aptitudes? And let's explore how you may be using them, how you could use them further, what the direction that might propel you in, and to spend time on that as well, because that's so important for a child or adult's development and self-esteem. Very well said, and our society is not geared up to give all these individuals exposure so that they can find something they're passionate about and good at and not everybody is the same. We get taught one size fits all. And going back to the stigma, we graduated three Aspie interns last year. And they're all doing well in college and so on and so forth. However, wow. not one of them would ask for the accommodations that would have made their lives so much easier because neither they nor their parents wanted the stigma involved. Oh, yes. That, that, that's, that's a huge problem. I mean... I, I'm very invested in public education, but as you're pointing out, it's very, you know, if I say that I'm doing a lecture on a mental health topic, you know, 
the only people that come are people who are already, you yeah. know, either struggling with that issue and know it and, and, or, or, um, you know, really already, as you said, you know, stigma is not an issue. And if, if it is, they're not coming because they don't want to be in the audience. They don't want to be seen being in the audience. So it is very difficult. Um, it's part of the reason that I started series like strength of mind or like psychobiography, because it's a way to talk to people who are just interested in people, you know, and then, and then they find out along the way, Oh, Hey, um, their brains are a little different. Um, and actually it, it helped them in many ways. And so I've, I've had many, you know, people come up at lectures and say, Oh, this, you know, I didn't want, I wasn't even thinking about this when I came to this talk, but you know, actually my son has, you know, ADD and I feel so relieved to hear this talk about Einstein or, you know, my, my, you know, sister has depression and just hearing this talk about Abraham Lincoln just gave me, you know, a feeling of, oh, you know, I see these, these strengths in her too. And that, that was really uh, made me feel better. So it's, it is hard to, um, to get to people when, you know, they already have these. And as you're saying in the generation before it was even more prevalent. So it's true that just as you're saying, I often see people coming in late and saying, I think I might be struggling with something. Actually, I think I've always struggled with something, but I had no idea it was a thing or what the thing was until just now my child has been diagnosed with this thing. Um, and of course, you know, many of these issues do have genetic components. And so it dawns on them that um, the same struggle their child's been having in school is the same struggle they had and that maybe they could benefit from some help now. That's a very common, that's a very common scenario. And it is so because of course, you know, years ago, people didn't even, you know, we didn't know about these issues. They certainly weren't talked about in children and, and the stigma was even greater. Now you just did a great segue for me because you spoke about genetics and Everybody wants to have a one cause. In other words, let's take the autism community. Yeah. Trying to get the vaccine people to talk to the genetics people, to talk to the environmental people. And I'm just, I'd find myself like Rodney King going, why can't we just all get along? Now look, couldn't it be possible that, that someone with a certain set of genes who gets a vaccine at a certain time and eats a certain diet because the gut has more neurons in the brain, and it's in a certain kind of environment, isn't it possible it's multifactorial? And it, it turns into a dogfight instead of saying, let's all work together to, to do the best we can. Well, look, when there's fear, um, emotions run high. And, you know, so... Um, you have a lot of people very, you know, upset and fearful that this could happen to them or it did happen to them, as it were. Um, so that is generating a lot of emotion. The other thing that drives a lot of emotion is money. And there's only so much money to go around to fund research. And um, unfortunately, um, I think that's about to get a lot tighter. Um because of the current administration's, you know, feelings about um, medical research or science in general and funding it. Uh, but as long as there are only, you know, so many dollars available for research, um, it will be limited. So these 
these groups sort of are really arguing over a fiefdom, a pile of, you know, who's going to get the money to do the work. Now, um, to be honest, from my standpoint, um, in terms of autism, for example, uh, a lot of work has been done. A lot of research has been done looking into vaccines and quite uniformly, um, with the exception of the person who turned out to be a fraud and making up data. So all data says that there, there just is no there there in the vaccine etiology. And um, I think um, if we're going to make progress at a certain point, you have to get a group to be willing to stop asking for more dollars because, as I said, there's only so many to go around. So I would, you know, I feel that we need to keep doing research because you're right. We don't know the cause. It, you know, probably is multifactorial. We just don't know what all the factors are. Um, there clearly is a genetic component, but that's not telling us enough. And so I, I you know, I, I'm concerned about the people well, who you maintain, see, you, know, yeah. you know, their stance, because, really just because of the dollars well, um, and, and, and I, the fact that we need to do the science. I appreciate what you're saying. I see it just a bit differently in the following sense. I feel like the way our grand system is set up, it's set up for inefficiency. What do I mean by that? When I was speaking out at the Aspen Brain Lab at the Aspen Institute, and I, I got up and I said, look, I'm probably the least qualified person here, but you just heard a great presentation from one university about how a plant-based Mediterranean-style diet helped with the rewiring neuroplasticity of brains in patients with autism. Later on, you're going to hear the same diet on a different grant from a different university did it for Alzheimer's. Guess what? These diets are good for all of our brains, no matter what it is. And wouldn't it be great if we could take that grant money and make it go further, which is, of course, anathema if you're on that thing. And, and so... The, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. It's true that we don't do a good job of the sharing of data. Yes. Um, and and the sharing of, of like when I was chairman of the Boys and Girls Club of Broward County, I would love to partner with another not for profit and apply for a grant together, you know, because it made so much more sense. You're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting different perspectives. So you're with the uh, Urban League. I'm with the Boys and Girls Club. We have this population at the Hacky Reitman Boys and Girls Club in the worst zip code in the world. You know, let's get together and do it. But as you point out, um, follow the money and people are watching their turf. And, uh, well, you and I, will go meet with the president and Congress sometime and we'll, uh, we'll straighten it out. Let's say I'm a parent of a child who has a different brain, okay? and is showing great promise in one specific area. And I know my opinions on this, but what do you advise that parent? I would, at home, I would advise that parent to, um, to seek treatment for the, you know, the issue that your child is struggling with, um, because you do want to alleviate suffering and you do want them to 
learn early on while, as you have noted, the brain is most plastic to uh, develop workarounds, you know, tools and skills they can to manage those symptoms, to um, alleviate or to work around those symptoms, and um, which will provide some rewiring that actually will, you know, be lasting, let's say. So that, I think that's important. But what I talk about in the book is that in, in mind should be sort of the 80-20 principle, which is, yeah, you want to spend about 20% of your time helping your child with their relative weakness. But you want to spend about 80% of your time helping your child hone and develop and explore their strength. And that's not what most people are doing. Most people are spending like 95% of their time on the weakness. And so there's no room left for developing the thing that they really are naturally more, you know, are better at. Um, and when you are good at something um, and it's pleasurable for you, then your brain releases the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine is the, is, is the neurotransmitter of pleasure and reward. And so it, it creates a feedback loop. Your brain likes that, feels good, and wants to do more of it. So it is much easier to get exceptionally good at something you're already good at and like than the struggle to pull you up from something that really is not your forte. So I go with this 80-20 principle, and, and in doing that, what are you gonna do? You're gonna expose them to many things that touch on this area of strength for them to see you know, what takes and what's enjoyable. You're gonna carve out time for them to do that. Um, and you're gonna talk with their educator about ways that they can use their particular strengths to do whatever schoolwork might be possible for them to use that for. So, you know, if they are a super visual learner, but, you know, auditory, not so much, you know, what projects can they do? What, what learning styles in school can the teacher employ to allow your child to manifest their strength? If they're doing a project and, um, and your kid is their visual spatial relations are fantastic because maybe they're on the spectrum a little bit or um, or maybe they have dyslexia and while the reading is really difficult for them the seeing patterns and the visual spatial abilities are excellent you want to talk to the teacher about any ways that projects can be presented and allowing them to do them using those skills because that's where they're going to be able to take and embed what they're trying to learn in a more favorable way and they're really going to be able to show what they know and feel good about being able to do that. Um, so that takes some, because schools unfortunately don't take this approach at all today, um, and they, they tend to have a much more, you know, jump through every hoop, do it the same way approach. It's really up to parents to yeah. talk individually with their educator and try to present the data. If a If a parent is unsure where their child's strengths might lay, Get the neuropsych tested. You know, it will it will lead the way. It will guide you toward what are their relative strengths and what are their relative weaknesses, so you can play to that. Okay, great. I you're scaring me because I agree with you so much on everything <laughs> you're saying here. I'm sure we can find something to argue about if that's what you would like. Oh, well, probably. How do people find out more about you? So if people want to find out more, they can go to my website, 
drgailsaltz.com. That's D-R-G-A-I-L-S-A-L-T-Z.com. Um, they can tweet me if they have a question um, at Dr. Gail Saltz. Um, the book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much wherever books are found. And the podcast, which is also called The Power of Different, and it is available on iTunes or on my, you can go to it from my website. Well, Gail, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again. Thank you so much for being a guest again on differentbrains.com. And thank you so much for all that you're doing for all of us whose brains might be a little bit different. Thank you for having me and thank you for getting the word out. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.